If you're familiar with our worship service and order of worship, you, you know quite well that the last element of our worship service, the last part, and the most brief part, is what we call the benediction. And that word benediction is a word that really means a bestowal of a blessing. And we see various benedictions and, and prayers offered for the people of God, for the blessing of God upon them, riddled throughout Scripture. We think of Jude's doxology and, and blessing in Jude 24. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence. To him who is able to do this. Or Peter's uh, benediction at the beginning of 2 Peter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Perhaps the most familiar benediction is the Aaronic uh, blessing. Uh, that is the blessing that Aaron and his sons, those who are called to be priests, were to pronounce upon the people of God, which we read in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. There we read, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons and say, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say this to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. They're wonderful words, but we might ask the question, are they just words? Are they more than words? Are these only a mere wish uh, for God's favor and blessing? To ensure that God's people know they're more than a wish, the very next verse, the last verse of Numbers chapter 6, we read this. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This is the promise of God. I will bless them. The benediction, then, is a, a pronouncement of something true, kind of like at a, a wedding when the officiant or minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. It's not a wish. This is a reality. This is true. And here as we come to the end of 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 5, the closing verses, this letter that Paul has written along with Silas and Timothy to this congregation that they've helped found, he, he gives to them uh, a closing benediction, a, a closing prayer for the blessing of God upon his people. So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and hear now God's word, verses 23 to 28. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The flow of this final section in 1 Thessalonians 5 here is important to see how Paul has unfolded this and put this together. He has rattled off in a rapid fire 
uh, kind of fashion, one command after another, one exhortation after another. Uh, From verses 12 and following, recall some of those that we considered last week. To to respect those who labor among you, uh, to admonish the idle, help the weak, uh, encourage the faint-hearted, rejoice always, pray uh, without fail, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, Many are the commands that Paul kind of rattles off, and there are many more commands throughout the Bible. And we are given these commands for the purpose that our lives would be reflecting the holiness of God, that they would reflect God in whose image we were made and in whose image we are being renewed by the transforming work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit uh, in us. And yet, when we step back and we examine our own lives, we know full well that while we do some of these commands, some of the time, we don't do any of these commands all of the time. We do some of them some of the time, but none of them all of the time. We are weak, we're finite, we continue to battle sin, the presence of the old self seeking to have its way in our lives. And so what do we do as Christians? We seek the Lord. We seek after the Lord for his help. And we say in our hearts with the psalmist in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. For he is my keeper. He keeps me. And here, Paul closes his letter with the hope of God's help in our lives. The hope of God's favor and blessing in the lives of his people. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept, be preserved at the coming of Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Paul does not give assurance about their sanctification or their glorification to come by just offering them a set of tools to be used. Here's a hammer, here's nails, here's lumber. Now go build. Go build. You're on your own. No. What does he do? He points to the chief architect, right? the ultimate builder of their salvation, which is God himself. We remember Paul's words in Philippians 2, Familiar and powerful words where Paul says, Now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. In St. Augustine's Confessions, that autobiographical work of his, I think chapter 10, Augustine offers this prayer that people have struggled over in church history. O Lord, essentially he says, O Lord, command what you will, but give or will what you command. Almost could come across as if we have no responsibility. But Augustine understood that while God has every right to command what he will, what he desires, without the hand and without the help of God, he's going to be hopeless for a life with God, a life reflecting the likeness of God. And here in Thessalonians, Paul is not only pointing to the work of God and the help of God, it's the blessing. It's the blessing of God. So think about first the the promise that is made in this blessing. 
the, the, the promised blessing. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul is not offering a mere wish for their well-being. It goes beyond his own personal ambitions for their own faith and their future. You and I might write a get-well card for someone who's ill, who's down, and while our words might be uh, a lift, an encouragement to them. Uh, our words don't have the power to sustain their life. Our words don't have the power to ensure their future. But Paul here is directing the Thessalonians to the source, to the, uh, to the source of their present blessings and their future blessings. It's God himself. And he stresses that by using the word himself, May the God of peace himself, stressing God's role in this, may he sanctify you. May the God of peace himself keep you at the coming of Christ. He is faithful. He will do it. The promise of God's sanctifying work in our lives and his promise to preserve us to the end reminds us of something very important as we go about our Christian life and journey, and that is the posture of God toward his people. The attitude, the posture in the heart of God toward his people. If, if we are upset, perhaps with a friend, or brother, sister, or sibling, and we're in their presence, we, we might look down. It might be our physical posture, or we might turn our, our back. We need to remember that the posture of God toward us is not a posture of indifference. For us, there may be many people or things to which we feel indifferent. I might ask you whether you like a particular food or a particular genre of music. What do you think about country music? Some of us might say, it's so-so. It's okay. I could take it. I could leave it. I might ask you about an actor. What do you think about Harrison Ford as an actor? Or Sylvester Stallone, some of us might say. They're so-so. They're okay. I could take them. I could leave them. But if God were asked what he thought about you, He would not say, he's okay. (laughs) They're they're so-so. I could take them. I could leave them. No. He would say something to the effect of, no, that one is mine. I've made him. I've made her wonderfully. I've knit them together in their mother's womb. And I have elected them. I've placed my seal upon them. My grace is upon them. I have glorious purposes. Glorious purposes for them. I love them. And sometimes the dark clouds of of our circumstances or personal sin, spiritual dryness, those things can kind of veil our eyes from seeing and knowing just how precious and treasured we are as the people of God. And Paul is ending this letter by seeking to clear those clouds 
to shine the promise of his blessing, the promise blessing of God upon his people. And it's summarized so well in Romans 8, verse 31 and 32. If, if God is not, if God is for us, who can be against us? He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's the promise of God. That's the posture of God toward his people. So there is a promise, and there are many promises from God to his people. But here we want to ask, well, what's the nature of this blessing? And really, we see several gifts of grace uh, from this promise that God grants to his people. First of all, Paul refers to God as the God of peace. Uh, This is how he began his letter in his initial address. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Peace. This is not just a greeting at the beginning or at the end of his letter, this peace is a new reality. They have peace with God, a peace they did not know before. God has reconciled these believers to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a peace that is permanent, and we should remind ourselves this is not what the world has. The world is not at peace with God. God is not at peace with the world. That is a peace that only is obtained through the work of Jesus Christ, being reconciled to God. They also have peace with one another. Here they are, adopted into this new family, the family of God. And and Paul has uh, exhorted them to brotherly love throughout this letter, this new relationship of familial love. We've heard exhortations about helping the weak being patient with all, seeking to do good to one another. So there's this peace that is being worked out in their own familial relationships in the body. And then they have peace within. These are all true for the believer. Think of Paul's words in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. I've often wondered, what what does Paul mean by a a peace that surpasses understanding? Well, it's understandable to feel or sense a kind of peace in your life when things are uh, going well. That's an understandable sense of peace. But the peace of God goes beyond that. As John Calvin put it, nothing is more foreign to the human mind than to hope even in the depth of despair or to see riches in the depth of poverty and in the depth of weakness not give way, knowing that nothing will be wanting to us when we are destitute of all things and all this in the grace of God alone. When many things uh, outside of our lives within seek to disrupt our hearts. It's only the peace of God that has the power to create inward calm. Inward calm amidst storms. So there's the peace, the peace of God. Another gift 
and blessing that God grants is that of holiness. May the God of peace sanctify you completely. And Paul has stressed the call upon their lives to be sanctified. Back in chapter 4, he said, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, holiness in the Lord. And we know that sanctification is this cooperative work. As we've been called into life with God, it's a work that involves our active participation. But Paul's emphasis here is on God as the primary, the foundational source of our growth in grace. Just verses earlier, earlier, if you look at verse 19, Paul said in one of those commands, don't quench the Spirit. Kind of indicating that we can at times either disrupt or, or extinguish the, the, the person of God, the Holy Spirit, working in our lives. But here Paul is stressing not so much our active participation, but rather God's work as the prime and principal cause of our holiness. May God himself sanctify you completely. That is to encourage us. John Piper writes these words, The Bible assumes that God is the decisive factor in making us what we should be. With wonderful bluntness, the Bible says, Put away malice and be tenderhearted. Ephesians 4. It doesn't say if you can, or if your parents were tenderhearted to you, or if you weren't terribly wronged. It says be tenderhearted. He says this is wonderfully freeing. It frees us from the terrible fatalism that says change is impossible for me. It frees me from mechanistic views that make my background my destiny. If I were in prison and Jesus walked into my cell and said, leave this place tonight, I might be stunned. But if I trusted his goodness and power, I would feel a rush of hope that freedom is possible. And this is not only a work of holiness in in progress and a work of God in us, it's a work that one day sees a completion May God himself sanctify you completely. We are works in progress. Perhaps you feel you've uh, plateaued in faith. Or you're in a valley of spiritual despair. Paul is reminding us that God is for us, not against us. He's not going to give up on his people. And that's another gift of grace here. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. That faithfulness of God is so precious because it is conditioned not on our moral output or our own moral character. It's conditioned on his own character. It's built on his own character. He is faithful. We are not. Our faith wanes. That's why we hear in Scripture words like, I believe, but help my unbelief. We fall into sin. Our faith at times fails us. But more important than our grip on God is his grip upon us. Paul's stressing that. He always keeps faith. Then we see the gift of preservation. May your whole spirit, soul, and body. That's a way of saying your whole being, your whole life. 
be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the one who robes us in his holiness is going to preserve us and keep us to the very end. It's not a sufficient holiness just at the end. It's not a blamelessness just at the end. That's something he does now and keeps and preserves us to the end. So many and rich are the blessings of God. Peace, holiness, preservation, his faithfulness. These are the gifts of God to his people. And it's for a a prosperity, a prosperous faith. This is not a false prosperity gospel for those of us familiar with that notion, that kind of name it and claim it theology. Paul is not putting forth anything like that. The problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it teaches prosperity, but rather how it defines prosperity and what is the cause of that prosperity. The false prosperity gospel essentially teaches that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy with no suffering, no pain, no troubles. And that that can be yours through faith. But the true gospel is of a different prosperity. It is peace with God. It's a life of sanctification. It's a life that is kept and preserved by the faithful hands of God. And it's ours, not because of our own great faith, but because He is a great God. He is a glorious Savior. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The Bible not only teaches this perseverance of the the faith and perseverance of the saints, but it teaches us to have assurance about that perseverance. The Apostle John in 1 John 5 writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. We remember Paul's powerful words in Philippians 1, being confident of this. He who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle. He says, now assurance goes far to set a child of God free. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt, a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease. And the great work, a finished work. And all other business, diseases, debts, and works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives him a fixed heart, a fixedness of heart. How do we know and experience this blessed life? I would end by pointing us to the words of our Master and our Savior, who spoke much about the blessed life. We see it captured in the Beatitudes. This is the the blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize an emptiness within their heart and the need to be filled by God. Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken 
over their condition. Blessed are the meek, those who yield to the ways and the will of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst again in emptiness in the desire to be filled by the things of God. The merciful, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Paul ends by asking for prayer and pointing us to one another again. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Calls us to turn one to uh, another. The, The kiss, perhaps on the cheek, a custom of greeting within the body of Christ. We shake hands, we embrace, we hug to encourage one another, to encourage one another in regards to the things that we have heard through this letter, that we can be built up as the people of God, continuing to walk faithfully after him who is so faithful to us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we are in awe of your word and the blessing that you bestow and promise upon your people. How many are the things, O Lord, that uh, veil us, veil our eyes, and uh, trouble us from seeing and beholding your wonder and your word and the promise of good things. You have indeed ordained for us a path of righteousness and a path of sanctification that is wrought with all kinds of trials and tribulations and difficulties. But we know this goodness, this grace, and the promise of these things because you are with us. We are your people. You abide with us and enable us to abide with you and in you. Oh Lord, how we cry out and pour out our hearts desiring for your blessing and your favor upon us that we would delight in you. Would you do that work in our hearts uh, that together we would uh, be light in a dark world. That we would know in the depths of our hearts uh, the glory that is ours at the consummation. And just as you've written to these brothers and sisters of of old, you continue to speak to your people. Continue to have your word dwell within us richly that it would produce an abundance of fruit. Joy in our hearts. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.